Hello, and welcome to PrimeMed's podcast series on contraceptives. The first of two podcasts will focus on understanding the contraceptive landscape outside of the pill. We welcome Dr. Pam Kushner, Director of the Kushner Wellness Center, and Dr. Kate White, Director of the Family Planning Fellowship at Boston Medical Center and Associate Professor of OBGYN at Boston University School of Medicine. The learning objectives of this podcast is to 1. Outline key updates in contraceptive management, including new contraceptive options. And 2. Compare and contrast the available hormonal contraceptive methods with a focus on those outside of the oral contraceptive pill. Before we get started, let me remind everyone that this podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Agile Pharmaceuticals. For more information, please visit the activity page for this podcast on www.primed.com. Hello, this is Dr. Pam Kushner, and I'm joined today by board-certified gynecologist and family planning specialist, Dr. Kate White. Today, we're going to review the current hormonal contraception options for women and people with a female reproductive tract. The focus of this episode will be on hormonal options. Welcome, Kate. Kate, can you please share any updates on hormonal birth control options in the past few years? Absolutely. There are two new hormonal contraceptives to talk about, plus some new information about emergency contraception. The first is a new vaginal ring. The brand name is called Anovera. A patient uses it like the current ring, in the body for three weeks and then out for one week. But the difference is that this ring can be used for an entire year. Wow. Right, so there's no need to go back to the pharmacy for a refill each month, and conveniently, there's no need to refrigerate it when it's out. I think of it like when we all had retainers in high school, we just needed to leave (laughs) it in a plastic case and not lose it. Um, That's the biggest challenge, I think, but it's awfully nice to be able to have in your possession a year's worth of birth control at once. Perfect. The next is a new patch. The brand name is called Torla. This is also used like the current patch, where one patch is applied to the skin for a week, then removed and replaced with a new patch. So there's three weeks of patch on, and then a patch-free week. There are two differences with this new patch. The first is that there's a different progestin in the patch, levonorgestrel, which is a progestin that's used in a lot of birth control methods and often leads to very good bleeding patterns. And there's also improved adhesive properties. The manufacturers of this patch say that the patch doesn't acquire the black ring around the edge that is very common and a big complaint of patch users whose clothes over time cause friction over the patch and lead to this grimy black film. So the patch technology is also improved with this product. Last is that we have a better understanding of some of the limits of emergency contraception. What we have learned recently is that the levonorgestrel EC product that most often goes by the brand name of Plan B starts to lose its efficacy for patients who have a BMI of 26 or higher, which Mm. is, right? That's about 60% of people in America are overweight or obese, and Plan B may not work for them. So these patients are better served with getting an advanced prescription for ulipristal acetate. The brand name is Ella, which is another oral form of emergency contraception that also works for five days after unprotected intercourse. It's even more effective than plan B on days four and five. Ella also loses its effectiveness at higher BMIs, but it's effective until a BMI of 35, which is pretty good. 
Yeah, that is pretty good. So despite the introduction of many other hormonal options that have similar failure rates, oral contraceptive pills are the most popular still. And my question to you is, can you review what hormonal options are available other than OCPs? And what are the benefits, if any, of using these options over the available overused pill options? <laughs> I would love to talk about this. When patients think about birth control, they almost always think about the pill. It is like the default option, and it's what most people think of when they think of birth control. So primary care clinicians have a really powerful role to play in widening patients' perceptions of what all of their available options are. And the way that you can think about the other hormonal options for contraception are how patients can access them. Do they need an office visit to place or remove the method, or can they get the contraception by prescription? The methods that require a visit to the office are the intrauterine device, called the IUD, and the contraceptive implant. Both have amazing efficacy, 99% or more, and can last for three to 12 years, depending on the type. One thing to know is that patients can expect changes in their bleeding patterns with the hormonal IUDs or the implant that may not be welcome. Patients may lose their periods, which for some people is fantastic and other people is terrifying, or they may have persistent spotting that can be near daily. So based on whatever kind of bleeding pattern is desired, you can recommend a higher dose IUD where you're more likely to achieve amenorrhea or the loss of periods, or a lower dose IUD where you're more likely to have predictable bleeding. There is also available a non-hormonal IUD, the copper IUD, for patients who don't want or can't have a method with hormones. With this IUD, a patient may have heavier or crampier periods, though this does tend to get better over the first three to six months of use. Then there are the methods that just require a prescription. These methods, not counting the pill, are the ring and the patch. Each of these methods provide excellent cycle control, giving patients predictable bleeding, light withdrawal bleeding, and very little cramping. They have about the same efficacy as the birth control pill, about 92% with typical use. The patch is good for folks who prefer a weekly option. They like the regular periods that are really predictable and they're not heavy. They just don't want to take a pill every day. And a ring is good for folks who have nausea with birth control pills. They may have gastrointestinal disease where swallowing a pill every day is not a good idea. Or they prefer a method that just lasts a little bit longer than the weekly patch. Then somewhere in the middle of these options is the injection. This is traditionally given in the office but there is a subcutaneous formula that can be self-administered. Patients can be taught by a nurse in the office, plus there are online resources, including videos to help teach patients how to self-inject. And when patients look at me like I'm crazy when I talk about a self-injection option, I say patients take insulin themselves all the time. We also give patients Lovenox or other injectables to prevent blood clots or to treat them, so patients can absolutely learn to self-inject by themselves. The injection is the method with the highest rate of amenorrhea. Up to 50% of users of the injection are gonna lose their periods altogether by the end of the first year, which is very desired for many patients. Unfortunately, it's also the method with the highest rate of weight gain of all of the hormonal methods. Some patients will only gain a few pounds, other patients we know can gain 20, 30, 40 pounds or more. So it's a good idea to counsel patients at the start of the use of any of these methods, what kinds of side effects they may face. Excellent review. Thank you so much, Kate. Kate, can you summarize the most important differences between the implant, injection, ring, IUD, and patch options? 
Absolutely. It is really easy to become overwhelmed by just how many options of contraception there are out there. And I think it's really helpful if clinicians are able to sort of categorize the methods for their patients to be able to break it down about the choice they can make. There are two major ways I think that you can categorize these methods. The first is by efficacy, very high versus high. And the other is by what the hormones are that the methods contain, whether they're a combined estrogen and progestin method or a progestin only. So let's take efficacy first. The IUD and the implant have the highest efficacy rates, over 99%, because they don't require regular maintenance. Once they're placed, the user doesn't actually have to do anything to ensure that the method continues to work. So some patients may really like this set it and forget it benefit, where they don't have to actually think about it, while others may not actually like a device that stays inside their body. When it comes to the pill patch ring and shot, all have high efficacy, about 92% or higher for these methods, but they do require regular action by the patient, you know, in order to get refills of the method, to go back for an injection. Some patients may like the ability to stop and start the method on their own. They like that control of being able to stop it if they have side effects or to stop it when they want to have a baby without having to go back to the doctor. While other patients find that they may need to try various methods to see what fits into their lives. They really like the effect these methods have on their bodies, but they're still figuring out, do they want to put a ring in their vagina? Do they want to swallow a pill? Adherence or compliance to the pills, patches, and rings is about the same. So it really comes down to the form factor with those methods of what patients prefer. So now let's talk about the hormones that are in these methods. When talking about the combined estrogen and progestin methods, which are most birth control pills, both rings, and both patches. These are the methods that provide the best cycle control, predictable periods, light bleeding, no cramping, but they are contraindicated for use by patients with hypertension, migraine headaches with aura, a history of VTE, smoking over the age of 35, and certain forms of cancer. Additionally, both patches and the newest vaginal ring are contraindicated for patients with a BMI of 30 or above because of the risk of blood clots. The old ring, NuvaRing, however, is still safe for patients who are obese. When looking at the progestin-only methods, which are two types of birth control pills, the injection, the implant, and the hormonal IUDs, these have fewer contraindications for use, so most patients can use these methods. But these methods are known for higher rates of irregular bleeding. Now, bleeding patterns may resolve and stabilize in the first three to six months of use, but they may not. So it's important to counsel patients that if they have a bleeding pattern around six months of use that they're really unhappy with, it is likely not to get better, and they may want to consider changing their method. That's really good advice. When would you recommend for or against each of those options, meaning like the implant versus injection versus ring versus IUD versus patch? And are there any contraindications to these options, like comorbidities, lifestyle, and preference, other than what you've mentioned? Sure. So it's really important at the start of a contraceptive counseling session to elicit someone's medical history that can reveal contraindications to these methods. So particularly thinking about estrogen contraindications, like hypertension and migraine and smoking, as well as what might be contraindications to an IUD use uterine abnormalities, uterine fibroids, because only by knowing what a patient is medically eligible to use 
do you really know how you can then counsel them about what their available options are? So that's the first important step. But after that, it's vital to focus the conversation on what the patient's values are. There are so many different effects you can have on your body from birth control, such as the idea of loss of periods. There are some people who say, I could pay any amount of money in the world to never have bleeding again, and that would be great, right? But right. Other, right? But other patients say, I really want to have a monthly bleed. I like to know I'm not pregnant every month, and it just feels more natural. So you never know how an individual patient is going to react to the profile of a method. So the most important question you can actually ask your patients is, what's important to you about your birth control? And they may say, the effectiveness of the method is the most important. I want the most effective thing you've got. But it may be side effects or the impact on their periods or being able to keep the method private from their partner or their parents if they're living in a home or many other things. And once you hear what's important to them, you can then translate those values into the choices of methods. So for instance, if a patient tells me, I don't want to lose my periods. It's really important to me that I see a period every month. I say, okay, then the shot may not be good for you because it's a 50-50 chance you're going to lose your periods. And the higher dose hormonal IUD has a decently high amenorrhea rate too. So maybe these are methods that you don't want to consider today. So let's talk about the other ones. And I only recommend methods that then match what the patient has told me is important to them. And this is where the clinician's role in the encounter is so important. We can send patients to websites all day long and send them home with 17 brochures, but patients can't really tell from all that information what the best method is for them. Only a really good conversation with a clinician can elicit those values and what's important and then match that up with what methods they could use. Such excellent advice for patient care, just in general as well, letting that patient have what's important to them. What are the top two, three question consults you get from primary care clinicians about hormonal contraception? I love getting consultations from primary care doctors about contraception. Almost everyone in my area has my email address or often my cell phone, because I think that when they're facing a dilemma with a patient in the office about what to do, it's great to be able to have expert advice at your fingertips. The first question I get most often is, when is it okay to start a method? In the old days, we made patients not start their birth control until the first day of their period. Now, given how hard it is to get appointments at all to come into the office to start right. things, right? Very frequently, yeah. we are seeing patients not on their periods. To say nothing of the fact how many patients will cancel an appointment if they're bleeding because they don't want to come in and potentially have an exam on their period. And so the great news is that patients do not have to wait until their period comes. They can start any method they want, anytime they want to start it, as long as a pregnancy test is negative. So for any method we're going to start in the office, like the injection or the implant, we'll run a urine pregnancy test first. For patients who get a prescription for methods to take at home, recommend that if they're not on their period, they just take a urine pregnancy test first, just to make sure they're not starting the method while they're actually pregnant. And then my advice is that a patient should take a pregnancy test in four weeks if they haven't seen any bleeding by then. This idea of a window pregnancy, where a person is actually pregnant, but the HCG levels are not high enough to trigger a positive pregnancy test, is rare, but is possible. So my safety net is that pregnancy test in four weeks. The other question I hear very consistently is, is 
X condition a contraindication to using birth control? And the larger version of that is, this patient is really sick. She has a lot of medical problems, and I don't think birth control is safe for her. My first feeling is that, well, not all birth control is the pill, right? Like we talked about earlier, there are plenty of birth control methods available for any patient, no matter how sick they are or how many medical comorbidities they have. And the best resource I can recommend for primary care or subspecialty physicians is the medical eligibility criteria published by the CDC. There is a multicolor chart on a PDF that you can download from their website. There's also an app for your phone. And it is the easiest way to get rapid answers to, in this medical condition, which birth control methods can they use? So if you don't happen to have a family planning expert on speed dial, <laughs> there is a place that you can go to get the same information very quickly. I do have one other question for you. I often get asked from people, from patients who are on contraceptive care, oral birth control pills, I'm like, I'm gaining weight from the pill. This is a fallacy and myth that's out there. Can you address that, please? Because we get that question all the time. I absolutely will. Weight gain is one of the most common complaints we hear from patients, whether they're on birth control or not. And I think it's really important that clinicians know what the data show about the risk of weight gain on contraception. We know from really well-designed studies that the injection and the implant are both associated with weight gain with use, but that the other methods do not appear to have weight gain due to the method. And so that's really important for counseling and anticipatory guidance when a patient is starting a method as to what they can expect when they're using it. That said, I'm never gonna deny a person's lived experience on a method. So if a patient comes in complaining of weight gain on a birth control method, even if the studies would not back up that the method was at fault, I still want to listen to what her concerns are and respect them. And I will tell patients that it may not be the birth control method that's contributing to the weight gain, but if they still want to change the method or remove the device, I'm going to honor their preferences and do that anyway. So... That concludes our podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our other podcast episode in this two-part series where we discuss how to talk to patients about contraceptive options. Thanks so much for listening. To obtain your CME credit, please visit primed.com and complete a short post-assessment. If you listen to this podcast on another platform, please refer to the episode description where there is a direct link to the activity page on primed.com for claiming CME credit.